0: Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. If a group of World War II-era journalists invited you out for drinks, ready to open up about their interviews with everyone from Gandhi and Nehru to their brushes with Mussolini and Hitler, what would you ask? We'll get that opportunity with today's guests, but first, hello history lovers and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Kariannis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. And a special tip of the hat to everybody watching today's time travel adventure via our YouTube and Rumble channels. You can find me at historyauthor.com or across social media platforms. Plus, you can read my columns in the Washington Times to get my analysis of current events. In the light of all the history I've read, from great books behind me, Like today's, it's called Last Call at the Hotel Imperial. The reporters who took on a world at war. Our guide in this journey is historian Deborah Cohen. She's going to introduce us to some very special people. They are John Gunther, H.R. Knickerbocker, Vincent Sheen, and Dorothy Thompson. They are really special people, and they're fascinating people. They were so full of life that I found them jumping off the pages of this book and speaking to me. Deborah Cohen is the author of The War Come Home, Household Gods, and Family Secrets. She's also the Richard W. Leopold Professor of History at Northwestern University. And while she's there, she focuses on the history of modern Europe. So we're really getting some insights today. And yet this book is very approachable I would recommend it to anybody who just wants a great story you can visit our guest at deborah or follow her at deborah a cohen on twitter okay now that we've elbowed up to the bar and ordered our poison let's join deborah cohen and trade stories with wartime journalists until the bartender declares its last call at the hotel imperial And here we are with Deborah Cohen. She's joining us to chat about Last Call at the Hotel Imperial, the reporters who took on a world at war. Thank you so much for making time to chat with me this morning, Deborah.
1: It's really a pleasure to be with you.
0: Well, your book was a pleasure and your website as well. I was so glad that I clicked over to DeborahCohen.com. It's the perfect place to start our interview because when readers go there, they see a striking background image. It's the kind of old bar scene that I think any of us who grew up watching those movies from the 1940s and 30s would love to just climb in there and sit down with these these characters. So here are these journalists and they're real people. I say characters, but they're characters in the sense of people that you'll say somebody is a, boy, that guy's a character. They are flesh and blood. And there they are doing the most flesh and blood thing of all, which is sitting down for some drinks after a long day. So say you were bringing me there to meet these journalists after hours, because this is exactly what you do in Last Call at the Hotel Imperial. What would you tell me to describe in the elevator pitch? Hey, we're meeting these four people. We're going to be participating in their conversation, but mostly listening. How would you describe each of them so that me as a reader, am ready to sit down with them and, and know exactly who I'm meeting tonight, who I'm going to be slinging back beer and wine with?
1: Okay, so you're walking in, and it is dark and smoky in there, but you're going to see two men, um, two big, tall, handsome, blonde Illinoisans, Jimmy Sheehan from Pena, Illinois, a small coal town uh, down south in the state, and John Gunther from Chicago. Both of them have made their start as cub reporters working for Chicago Papers, and then they come to Europe, where they have been uh, reporting on all of the main events of the day, from putches to coup attempts to revolutions. Um, John Gunther becomes famous in 1936 for his book, Inside Europe, which is a taboo breaking behind the scenes account of what is going wrong in Europe, the lives of the dictators, um, Hitler with his Oedipus complex, as big as a house, as John Gunther puts it, Um, or Mussolini's superstitions or the tension between Mussolini and Hitler, um, all of that behind the scenes information. So that's John Gunther. The guy he's sitting with is Jimmy Sheehan. um, And he has become famous in 1935 for a book that is really a kind of era defining book called Personal History, which is Sheehan's attempt to really convey what it's like from his experiences as a reporter, as an individual to come to terms with the epoch-making events of his day. Uh, Then there is a red-haired kind of, um, one of those wiry coiled types of men, um, the reporter H.R. Knickerbocker. So Knickerbocker is another friend of theirs. He's also sitting around with them. Um, He is reportedly the highest paid international correspondent in the world. He works most of his career for William Randolph Perth's international news service. Um, and he is among other things, the complete noire of Go- Goebbels, of um, Joseph Goebbels of Hitler's propaganda minister. And then there are two women who are there too. One of them, Dorothy Thompson, is absolutely at the center of all of the action. She can hold her drink, she is telling stories, she's asking other people questions. She's amassed a string of firsts. So she's the first American woman to lead a major overseas nerd news bureau. She's the first American reporter to be kicked out of Nazi Germany in 1934. And she's the first woman to have a syndicated political column, a sort of op-ed column as we would call it, which is read by eight to 10 million readers in thrice weekly. And then there's another woman who's sitting at that group so she, unlike the rest of them, holds back. Uh, she's shy, seeming. You have to lean in to actually hear what she has to say. Everyone else is boisterous and telling jokes and stuff. And she is Frances Feynman Gunther, John Gunther's wife. So she doesn't really like bars. She's there just because she you know, wants to be with her husband and wants to see the friends. She's known for the acuity of her observations. John Gunther says that he gets all of his best lines from her, Um, but she's also known for the sharpness of her tongue. (laughs) So she's the kind of person you lean in close and you might hear something amazing, but you also might get your head bitten off. So there they are. And you're asking for advice as to what, you know. how do you approach this group? It's tough to get a word in edgewise. They are shouting, they're arguing, they're cracking jokes. So I would say you come in, you want to kind of impress them, then you the you need a joke. You need a joke about one of the major European leaders, because they're talking about the palace intrigue in Romania and the kind of scurrilous gossip about Stalin. So come with a joke.
0: I picture them there and from my own career in journalism and from working in midtown Manhattan you knew which bars were for which news organizations in fact there was a Channel 4 bar for a while for NBC people and you would know where each group would be on a Thursday night it was always the night that people would go out and the choice of the place was very important if you walked in a place and veteran news reporter anchorman Gabe Pressman for example I could tell you right where he was on those nights and you approach them all in a different way as you said but the places they chose to spend their after hours or to meet sources told you a lot about them they they chose them very specifically i know that i was part of the choosing some of those times there were places i just i didn't like the name or i didn't like it said established 1969 and i said well so was i this place isn't old enough for me i live in the past right so what was it about the hotel imperial that made it a special place for this group and drew them to spend their time there sit there as the war clouds gathered and share their
1: thoughts. So the Hotel Imperial was one of their two main watering holes. So the other one which I'll talk about in a second was the Cafe Louvre. And the Cafe Louvre was more the place where you would spend a night. The Hotel Imperial was a fancier place. It still exists. It's on the Ringstrasse in Vienna and it If you walked into the Hotel Imperial, into that cafe, what it felt like was, this is the way people described it. There was a kind of aroma of conspiracy about the place. They're big mirrors and you could watch the comings and goings, who was coming in. So they would always have tipsters who were coming by to offer them the latest news, gossip, rumors for a couple of bucks. Um, There were the turpentine merchants and the jewel dealers. And so there was a sense of kind of milling about and right as if you were at the heart of things. Now the cafe Louvre um, was across the street from the city's main telephone and telegraph uh, building. So the important thing about that location was you heard something, it sounds good. You could run across the street and if it was really important, wire it in. Um, And that was the place where they tended to spend, you know, late, late, late into the night. That the title of the book also refers not just to the um, reporters who hung out at the Hotel Imperial, but also to Hitler who um, in, after the um, Anschluss, after the annexation of Austria, the place where he established his um, headquarters in Vienna was at the Hotel Imperial. And that was because as a young man, he had been shuffling snow outside, and this is by lore, um, outside, and felt so excluded by the fancy people who were coming in. And so when he arrived in Vienna, you know, the big cars rolling through the streets, that's where he went.
0: Something to think of that connection as well. And you describe the place as something you do in Last Call at the Hotel Imperial, and we all wish that we could climb in there go back to say even the 20s things are changing the whole world is changing and these men and women are witnessing it technology is something you just mentioned about how they would they would go and you'd have to call in your story that's very different from today i want to get to that later but i want to focus on that 20s period because this is when they are cub reporters this is when we all know looking back that okay they have 15 20 years to maybe really hone their craft before the Jazz Age ends, the Roaring Twenties and the Good Times end with the Great Depression. So who would these journalists have been? How were they learning when they, you look back as the author and see them in different places in the world? And you know your final destination here is mm-hmm. during the war at this hotel, at this other cafe. How did they hone their craft? How did they get to be sitting on those stools, drinking that wine, beer, liquor in your book?
1: So the men, the young men, the three young men, Knickerbocker, Sheehan, and and, uh, Gunther were all cub reporters and they in America, first of all. And they were covering, you know, Lindbergh's latest um, escapades and gangsters in Chicago and shootouts and Rotary Cub luncheons and that sort of thing. And they all leave in the early 20s because they're fed up with the United States. They're fed up with prohibition. They're fed up with moralism. They have an attachment to European culture. So Knickerbocker actually goes uh, to Europe to study, to Germany, to Munich, to study, uh, to become a psychiatrist. He'd been a reporter, but now he wants to really understand human motivation. And then one night he happens to go into a beer hall where a putsch is taking place. Um, the famous, uh, Hitler's famous 1923 beer hall putsch and back he springs into reporting. Um, wow. Essentially, yes, he had fantastic timing um, and a <laughs> finely honed sense of where the action was going to be. And that was really important because each of them as cub reporters, they go over to Europe. So the men go over Um, you know, with experience in journalism behind them, the women, Dorothy Thompson and Frances Gunther, both have experience in public relations. So not so much in journalists, uh, as journalists, but they go over to Europe as stringers. And the calculation they have to make is where is the future going to happen? Where is the action going to be? And they make different calculations. So at this point, they don't know each other, right? They're sort of all sort of separate dots on the map and then they begin to converge. But uh, for Dorothy Thompson, for instance, her interest is in the deposed European monarchies. Are those monarchs, are the kings and the emperors and the queens going to be able to scramble their way back to power? So she's covering that story really closely from East Central Europe, from Hungary and from um, Austria. Frances Gunther is entranced by the Soviet Union by the creation of new men and women there. So she goes to the Soviet Union to try to understand what is communism like in practice. Um, John Gunther has a really finely honed sense of uh, dictatorship and at a point when people are still talking of the are still believing that the main story of the post-war period is going to be the establishment of democracies, right? Democracies carved out of the rumps of the fallen empires. Gunther writes to a girl he's trying to impress to say, actually the real story is not democracies but it's dictatorships. There are dictators rising all over the world, all over Europe, Romania, Italy, um, Hungary, uh, Greece, Turkey. That's the story. So this is in 1926, right? Incredibly prescient. Um, Jimmy Sheehan is really interested in anti-imperial movements. So he goes to Northern Africa where the Rifi peoples are in a pitch battle um, to throw off the yoke of French and Spanish um, imperialism. So they all choose different places. And then, as I said, events begin to converge
0: like that you're able to go on this trip with them here and follow them through their lives it always feels a little bit seedy and exciting right i know your future and i get to follow you in doing it one thing about journalists is they keep a lot of notes so in your case they're all in paper you have to comb through those what sources were you able to mine to give readers glimpses from the last call at the Hotel Imperial that they wouldn't get from just reading the copy that these journalists all published in their papers or in their wire stories.
1: These are extraordinary archives that these reporters kept. So I've been a historian for 30 years and I've worked in some amazing archives, but nothing like this. So the archives of John Gunther are 250 boxes. I mean, we're talking boxes like this, um, full of incredible riches like a letter that the Indian nationalist leader Jawaharlal Nehru writes after the death of his wife, um, or observations about riding in an airplane with Hitler. He doesn't speak to a single soul. Um, So you have this extraordinary behind-the-scenes glimpse of these people, of the kind of gossip that does not make it into anyone's stories, because the editors are not going to permit that. So there's that category. So you get this sense of like, what was it like to sit with these people? What was it like to interview them? And then there's a second category of sources too, which is their reporters. As you say, they write everything down and they write everything down, not just about their professional lives, but also about their personal lives. So diaries and diaries, diaries kept after psychoanalysis, after a psychoanalytic session, letters, frank letters, Um, arguing with, you know, husbands, wives arguing with each other. So people reflecting on their own inner lives. The thing that's so striking about them is that they're all born basically around the turn of the 20th century. So though they are, they grow up in a kind of atmosphere of Victorian rationalism, trying to understand, so what is, you know, how can you explain uh, human motivation? They then come to their adulthood in a period when people, courtesy of psychoanalysis, begin to think about humans as fundamentally irrational. But because they these two impulses are really roaring within them, I think that that explains this huge productivity in terms of diaries and internal scrutiny, which is that they're trying, they apply all the tools of rationalism to pretty fundamentally rational things, trying to understand them.
0: You said one, small item there that I wanted to point out and that was taking a plane ride with Hitler and it may not sound particularly exciting to us today or interesting or noteworthy because we fly as easily as we want but in those days that's something that Hitler uses as an innovation when he's preparing to take over Germany to build support something that David Pietrucia discussed with me in our interview about his book 1932 FDR and Hitler parallel lives I believe is the title something like that and it's behind me if people are watching but anyway that's a key moment so it may not sound like it It may just sound like a brush with evil but These are the kind of things, as you said, very, very lucky, good timing to be there at what's the dawn of aviation. And he's the first one to do what we would call barnstorming. So I, I just I love those little moments. And if you are someone who loves history, you're going to find so many of those in here in your area of interest. And you'll be reading Last Call at the Hotel Imperial and you'll say, whoa, that this was happening. That's so important. That's so significant. And if you're not a historian, you'll still be so excited by the lives that they have. They're the kind of people that make you look at your own life and say, boy, I haven't had nearly this many exciting experiences.
1: They jump off the page. Right. And for me, sitting in the archive, they were such immediately vivid um, personalities
0: you really bring them to life here in last call at the hotel imperial so i i really did feel like i was sitting there maybe have a drink while you're reading the book i would suggest <laughs> it's that it's that fun you really the feel like you're cocktail. sitting
1: there it's the bourbon cocktail <laughs> of the 1920s
0: i'll have to start mixing that up i I usually just have it over ice but i'll do whatever i'm right away thinking i want to be like them right i want to be like these journalists i'll i'll do whatever they tell me to do drink what they tell me to drink make you definitely a much more exciting person maybe even a better writer the prologue of last call at hotel imperial puts us right there takes us right to the beginning when there's that hinge moment of history that's going to change You say september 1939 at the start of it it's one of those dates that immediately snaps history into focus we know exactly what is happening and then nothing will ever be the same how does the outbreak of the second world war when hitler invades poland that month change the way these journalists do their jobs because now every government in the world is on a war footing in short order in a couple of years and they're censoring reporting they're telling their own version of events they're using journalists sometimes to try to send false information and then you have fascist and communist governments who have no reservation about shooting someone who paints a portrait that they don't like in the newspaper so how does the outbreak of war change? Is there a break for them just as there is for the whole rest of the world when you hit September 1939 and the tanks roll into Poland?
1: So let me, first of all, yes, it's a great question. Let me, first of all, put you on that boat that begins the story of the book, which is it's Knickerbocker, the red-haired Texan, and John Gunther who were boarding a boat called the New Amsterdam. It's a neutral Dutch liner. You want to take a neutral boat across the Atlantic in September, late September of 1939. And they are, uh, at that point, some of the best known reporters in the world. And I want to leave a little bit of suspense to the story. All I want to say about uh, this, and it comes back to censorship, is that Knickerbocker um, has become Goebbels enemy number one and he is literally bang for Knickerbocker's blood as Knickerbocker is boarding that ship. So censorship. So American uh, reporters continue to work after the outside of the second world war, they continue to be able to work because America too is a neutral country in Berlin and in uh, Mussolini's um, Italy. Are um, The figures at the heart of my book though have already long since burned their bridges there. So Knickerbockers tossed out of Germany. John Gunther is on Hitler's um, black book list of one of the people to be um, arrested and probably killed at the invasion of Britain. Um, uh, Dorothy Thompson, as I said, kicked out of Germany. So their lives have already veered know the the number of places where they can actually report from is becoming more and more constrained or as Jimmy Sheen says they've had a lot of horses shot out from under them. Um, Censorship for them then becomes most acute not in the um, authoritarian countries but actually in Britain itself where they are reporting on the blitz and there are all sorts of rules about how to report in the Blitz. And they're constantly engaged with the censor and things like you can't report on anti-aircraft systems despite the fact that Germans are producing communiques about them, everyone knows about the British anti-aircraft systems. But Jimmy Sheehan, who is literally sitting out there on the Shakespeare cliff reporting on the dogfights between the British and the German flyers, has his stories cut down by the British censor to say a hearty battle ensued. <laughs> and he says- painful. Yes, right. People are going to say, I'm an idiot. All it can say is a hearty battle ensued, or there was a fierce engagement or something like this in the place of all of his brilliant description. Um, so of course, that everyone's room for maneuver becomes constrained. It's extraordinarily difficult to get into Nazi-occupied Eastern Europe to actually do any reporting by the time that John Gunther returns to to Italy in 1943 for the for the invasion at that point there's a kind of pool system that's in force so you don't get credit as a single reporter you're really funneling everything out to the pool
0: tough time to be trying to do your job and try to write well and report what you see you think about it risking your life it's not an easy job and then they're telling you some I'm immediately again on the side of the journalists here in your book last call at the hotel imperial and i'm thinking to have some hack who knows nothing about writing or reporting is now gonna presume to edit their work i'm i'm offended in the past even though i understand the need for secrecy and whatnot this is how you'll feel when you pick up this book you feel invested in it and we're getting something that is beyond what they call news right they call news the first draft of history and I wanted to ask you how the work of these four American journalists helped shape the way that people back home across the Atlantic viewed the conflict, especially in light of those obstacles put in their way by censors, and also how it shaped how we see it today. To quote your subhead, they took on a world at war. How did their first draft of history, and now the behind the scenes look that you give us in Last Call at the Hotel Imperial, change the way that history records that conflict?
1: Yeah, it's such a good question. I think that, so they are a very small number of people fundamentally funneling the news for millions of readers. And so that's the first thing, which is that from the twenties and the thirties, that they are the people who are really shaping how stories like the rise of the dictators or the rise of colonial, anti-colonial insurgencies are getting funneled back to America. So as Jimmy Sheehan says, the Ibro River, the river in Spain runs through the Thames. So there's a connected world. And that's the point that they try, keep on trying to get across to their readers. And I should say, and I think this is really important, these, are, these journalists do not come from the East Coast or from the Ivy League. They grow up, many of them in the American heartland. They grow up in small towns. This is true in general about the foreign correspondents of that era, right? Uh, uh, they come from Velva, uh, North Dakota, like Eric Sebride, um, or Murrow from the West Coast, Knickerbocker from Texas. So they have a really finely tuned sense of what their fellow citizens want to need want to know and need to know so that's the first thing which is that they're they're kind of looping america into a kind of global information system and then the second thing and this is true not of all of them because they argue about this internally but dorothy thompson Jimmy Sheehan and H.R. Knickerbock are absolutely beating the drum for American intervention in the Second World War. And that, in a sense, begins even before the war itself. But certainly by the time, by September 1939, they believe that the United States has to be in that war. And they're really significant for that reason. As for how their first draft of history holds up, you know, they're incredibly... There are two things. I mean, they're incredibly perspicacious. So someone like Knickerbocker predicts the Nazi Soviet pact um, two years before it happens. He also, at the outset of the second world war, he says, this war is going to last six years. A couple of years into the war, he knows how it's already going to end. He understands what D-Day is going to be. I mean, these are all educated guesses, but guesses born of great expertise. So there's that, they're perspicacious, but they're also trying to figure stuff out. And the first draft of history is doing something like trying to understand what dictatorship actually is. What is modern dictatorship? Now that's kind of a settled question. We have ways of, we have, you know, it's the control of the free press. It's the suppression uh, of dissent. It's violence, it's expansionism, it's aggression. Now we know those things, but they didn't. And so trying to understand, are the dictators going to destroy each other? Maybe the democracies can just sit on the sidelines and watch Mussolini and Hitler fight it out, because it's far from obvious that they're all, that they're going to be on the same side.
0: People questioned it even here in the United States. There's Gabriel over the White House. They're screening it in the White House, and it's basically a public service announcement for fascism. And there's people who wanted him to take the New Deal further, and there are people who said, well, we need to do away with the Constitution, and we need to just have one man in charge doing everything. And as you're saying, you hear this echoing, Throughout history, always that people want the man on the white horse, the strong man. So this is happening everywhere. There's 12 democracies left in the world at the outbreak of World War II, right? So these journalists are also fighting for their own survival here as they are doing their reporting. It's not just that they're doing a job and they're gonna go home safe at night and they're gonna get an Osgood award at some point. They're they're really they're really reporting and trying to inform people because it's gonna be important to their way of life.
1: Absolutely, it's existential for them. As Knickerbocker says when he resigns from his job at Hearst, uh, because Hearst himself is an anti-interventionist, Knickerbocker resigns in 1941 and says journalists of all categories of people have more reason to fight Hitler and his crew. So you're absolutely right. They view what they are doing as a core principle of democracy and that's what they're going to defend.
0: You're enjoying my conversation with Deborah Cohen. She's author of Last Call at the Hotel Imperial, the reporters who took on a world at war. You can visit her at DebraCohen.com. Be sure to see that great background image, give you a thousand words worth, probably more than that. Good writers even take good pictures. And you can also visit her at Deborah A. Cohen on Twitter. Susan Peterson, author of The Guardians, The League of Nation and the Crisis of Empire, writes of last call at the hotel imperial it is both bracing and oddly comforting to read deborah cohen's luminous account of a group of writers who faced their own challenging times with courage wit and portable typewriters we have much to learn from this brilliant reclamation of their commitments and their lives deborah i want to ask a practical question about technology of the time as you mentioned earlier about having to run across the street to file your copy from the Hotel Imperial those portable typewriters I'm old enough to remember the ones that we had even probably was a 60s 70s model and that was heavy enough or the one they trained us on in school was probably from the 40s it was really big and heavy when you're in school pushing down the buttons learning to touch type this obviously is their tool that's their piano that's their instrument and both covers of Last call at the Hotel Imperial, the UK and the US cover feature typewriters prominently. We can see their keys. So, here in 2022, everybody with a smartphone can record a video. If they have a satellite phone, they're never out of touch. You can make your notes there. It's very easy to do your job, or much easier to do your job anyway. How did technology in the 1930s and 40s make the jobs of these journalists different and more challenging than someone who's in a war zone today?
1: You know, journalists in a war zone today face so much more danger than they did because there was still, You, it's true that there were journalists killed uh, in combat in the Second World War, and certainly someone like Knickerbocker was thrown into a Spanish dungeon by Franco's forces. So it wasn't risk-free, but by comparison to today, where you know a media having on a media jacket make, is making you a target for um, snipers in Ukraine, that part of their job was less dangerous. But let me get to the technology question because it's a it's an interesting one. So in the early twenties, when they go to Europe you have two options with your story. Either you can cable it back and it's really uh, expensive and it's quick, but expensive. Or if you think that your editor is gonna scream at you, why did you spend that money on a cable? Then you can mail it back. So that was a mailer story, a much longer kind of color story. The great innovation that happens, so by the thirties for John Gunther, when he's got a really hot story, what he does is he picks up the telephone, And he calls it into, from say Vienna, to the Paris office of the Chicago Daily News. And there he dictates it into a dictaphone. um, So it's both immediate and much less expensive. And it has a really crucial other component, which is that you avoid censorship in that way. Because even if the censor happens to be listening on the phone, it's kind of too late, right? The story is (laughs) they are captured into the dictaphone. And this is true in Moscow as well, by the way. Um, So in order to bring down this ability of journalists to actually be calling in their stories, you have to turn off all of the phone in the entire country. And that does actually happen. So in 1934, when there's a a civil war and then there's the assassination of the Austrian dictator, um, Dolfus, all of the phone systems go down and they have to race across the border to Bratislava to actually file their stories.
0: Something to think that even in the 30s and 40s, that something as basic as your life and we think of that as such a horrible conflict but i was thinking one of the reasons that journalists are more at risk today and we have a couple of dozen being killed around the world each year is because a lot of them are inspired by those war correspondents that were back then they were telling those stories and they want to get their own story they want to get in there they're not willing to accept what modern censors tell them and don't tell them so it, it has a link back to the journalists we meet here in last call at the hotel imperial and that's one of the reasons we study history right is because we want to learn from people who faced as susan peterson called it challenges similar to our own and she invoked that because it's true and yeah. so how do you hope today's journalists will learn from these journalists they pick up last call at the hotel imperial and they read it how do you hope that they'll apply the lessons the life strategies the way that these journalists went about their lives and their careers to the way that they report today from somewhere like eastern europe from a war zone around the world how do you hope they'll apply these lessons that we learn safely from reading the book over drinks
1: Uh You know, I think one of the things when journals have read the manuscript, what they said was, oh, this is also familiar on the one hand. So, so many of the discussions that happen today about objectivity in journalism um, and about the threats to objectivity were absolutely playing out then. And to some extent, it's not surprising because how can you be objective about Nazi Germany? How can you be objective about dictatorship? Um, John Gunther is sending back stories about attacks on Jews after Hitler takes power in 1933. And his editors say, we need more balanced coverage. And he says, what does that mean, essentially? I think that there's a circularity to the objectivity, subjectivity question that's really important. And then one of the things that journalists who read the book have also said is, wow, you know, they lived in a time of surplus, of abundance. So yes, they've got We've got satellite phones now, but that means we're tethered to the main office. Whereas someone like Jimmy Sheehan, he just disappears for three months. And then he doesn't <laughs> want to write a story. He writes, he you know, he feels very strongly about what is happening in Palestine in 1929. And he doesn't want to write for the Jewish paper that has employed him any longer for the Jewish telegraphic agency. And so he sends back cables saying, do not annoy me by further cables. <laughs> so It's not just that they're detached, it's just that it's also that, it's not just that they can detach. It's also that they are, you know, this is a time when um, American newspapers are opening up bureaus all over the world and they're sending correspondence all over the world and they have incredibly lavish expense accounts. So Knickerbocker in Addis Ababa in Ethiopia and Abyssinia, as it was then, um, spends $90,000 in contemporary dollars over two months which is just a huge fortune <laughs> so expense accounts beyond imagining
0: <laughs> that's nice the journalists today can worry about those or envy those rather oh so, yeah
1: well it's a kind of glamour right that yeah these people have.
0: well and it's something you also get here from your book is that we do tend to glamorize the past and think people had it easier and that's why i think this is such an important view behind the scenes because you learn what they're doing beyond the big set piece battles and beyond the sanitized. everyone looks so nice at a uso show back then with their tie and their little outfits and their uniforms are always spick and span in the movies and that that's not real life now and it wasn't real life then so that's really a view of the war of world war ii that we don't get and they were getting it in person
1: that's absolutely the case i mean their job was behind the scenes. And because they had such extraordinary access and part of what they're doing really is trying to figure out what's gonna happen next by sitting down with Mussolini say or Hitler or Gandhi and Nehru. Um, So they, or Trotsky, John Gunther travels on a paddle boat to, from Constantinople to the island of Prinkabo to interview Leon Trotsky they're able to tell us what an incredibly smart and discerning person at the time, knowledgeable person at the time, kind of imagined the future to be.
0: I like the idea that you have cameos in the book, and that's something I wanted to mention about Last Call at the Hotel Imperial, because historical figures that we know from the time, it's easy to caricature them. And this reminds us that they were flesh and blood. For instance, Dorothy Thompson, she's married to Sinclair Lewis. So that that made me look at her in a new way and okay you think you have a little link but also made me realize she would have faced unique challenges because she's a married woman and as we all know from those 40s movies and reading history that was different people looked at you differently and different things were expected and there were different rules for you and for women in general so what did that relationship tell you about the unique challenges that dorothy thompson faced as she's trying to do her job as she's trying to be a journalist
1: yeah, so the, the movie Woman of the Year, right, is in part based on the um, romance or anti-romance of Dorothy Thompson and Sinclair Lewis. Um, so Dorothy Thompson, Sinclair Lewis was Dorothy Thompson's second husband, second of three. She married him in 1928. At that point, he was a world famous novelist. He's going to go on in a couple of years to win the Nobel Prize for Literature, um, the first American to do so. At the same time, he was incredibly intimidated by Dorothy Thompson's career, which goes to your point about the sorts of challenges that she's facing. So he is always banging on about how people refer to him or they're going to talk about him as being Mr. Dorothy Thompson. And Dorothy Thompson, of course, says this isn't ridiculous, but it's true in the sense that uh, when he publishes one of his most successful novels of the 1930s, it can happen here, about the coming of fascism. Imagine the coming of fascism to America. Everyone assumes that Dorothy Thompson is behind this book. So she had a complicated road to hoe in order to have, you know, a satisfying marriage, which she does have with her third husband, the artist, the painter, Maxim Kopf. Um, but her challenges i mean what she would have said because she's asked this question often what are the specific challenges that you as a woman have faced in in becoming a foreign correspondent and she sort of laughs that off and says you know Europeans only Americans ask that kind of question Europeans are used to women having intelligence and they have no problem with me and it is indeed true that american women correspondents in what is a relatively new field and certainly an expanding field have a very, very surprisingly wide range of endeavor. So in my book, there's Dorothy Thompson and Frances Gunther as I've said, but also some other fantastic uh, foreign correspondents like Martha Gellhorn um, or Emily Hahn, Mickey Hahn who wrote for the New Yorker or Janet Flanner. I mean, in other words, on and on and on there was a space in the 1930s for women correspondents in part because they played to the kind of emotionality of the moment. So someone like Dorothy Thompson becomes famous not for her objectivity, but for her emotional appeals, her appeals for the future of civilization, for the survival of democracy, for women and babies who are being bombed right now. Um, and that's, that's a terrain in which uh, women reporters did a number of them find their feet.
0: Worth noting, in defense of American women, they managed to earn the right to vote 20 years before the people in France. So despite that great wine that we would find in that bottle on the table, we think the grass is not always greener over there. But interesting that she makes that observation that that's what people ask her. And that's... Part of that great movie that you mentioned woman of the year with Katherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy of course for her her trademark was she wore pants right so this was revolutionary for her as an actress that's a great old movie that I definitely would recommend to everybody out there a great companion here now we know to Last Call at the Hotel Imperial Cara Robertson who I interviewed about her book The Trial of Lizzie Borden a true story she's the one who recommended Last Call at the Hotel Imperial to me so I am in her debt and she was also kind enough to offer a video question here for you. So let me play that and then I can get your reaction to it. Hello, Dean and Deborah. Thank you so much for letting me ask a question. Deborah, your work includes such extensive archival research and part of uh, the richness of your story are the personal details you're able to glean from that. Uh, it's almost as if we're we're eavesdropping on your main characters. Uh, and I'm wondering how you decide to draw the line between uh, what is too private uh, and what you need to use to tell the larger
1: story. Thank you very much. So this is a really important question and actually quite a tough line to draw because the reporters at the heart of the book are themselves engaged in taboo breaking reporting. So they're you know reporting the sorts of stories that their editors say, we can't print that. Um, like about um, the leader of Turkey, Kamal Ataturk's mother fixation or the hinting that he's got gonorrhea and that is just not a fit subject for printing so they themselves are pushing that line and that's part of what John Gunther does in Inside Europe is he reports uh, these kind of pen portraits that are gathered from all of the things that people that reporters are saying to each other in bars like the Cafe Louvre or the Hotel uh, Imperial or the Hotel Adlin in Berlin there was that, which is there's a lot of stuff behind in their notes that I oftentimes thought, okay, well, I probably <laughs> I shouldn't retail necessarily um, unsubstantiated unsubstantiated gossip. But then there's also their private lives, and that they're avid chroniclers of, and they did it for a reason, which is that they thought that as a destigmatization of things that were perfectly normal. Should be taking place. I mean, they had a program and that program was to feel that people are too hemmed in, too repressed. Part of the situation that has gotten us into the turmoil of fascism and dictatorship is that people cannot express their deep human emotions. And instead they, you know, follow leaders like Hitler. And so they, engaged in really frank memoir writing and published very frank memoirs. So Vincent Sheehan publishes what's thought to be at the time the frankest memoir of a marriage ever written about Dorothy Thompson and Sinclair Lewis um, in 1963, or John Gunther publishes his taboo-breaking 1949, Death Be Not Proud, about the death of his son, Johnny. So the rule I set for myself then was to write to include only those kinds of intimate and private details that were necessary in order to sort of sketch out the worldview and what what happened to them actually as a group. Um, but as I oftentimes joke, I could also write a totally second separate book about prostitution <laughs> in Britain, um, Europe, and America. So there's a you know these are incredibly, incredibly rich and revealing archives
0: boxes and boxes and boxes it sounded like so you deserve a compliment just for being able to get it all down into a narrative that's enjoyable to read but also you have a responsibility as as a historian to not get too close to your subjects and i know there's a couple of books here on the shelves behind me that i'd read it and i would say boy, this person is just what you were saying. There's no balance. Legitimately, in my case, are you too close to you say, well, people talk about this part of Grover Cleveland's sex life, but I, we we don't need to get into that. And I'd say, well, not that I want to read about Grover Cleveland's sex life, right? This makes me sound like a really weird person, but I would like some analysis in hindsight of history of what this guy really was thinking that he marries his young ward or he raises from a baby. And I think that's kind of a, it's, interesting and it, it's important for us to know to understand the guy especially in light of today we're very concerned fortunately about things like sexual harassment and violence against women and it would help us define a guy like that so that that's the kind of choice that I would make you certainly make them here in last call to hotel imperial it is last call for us so i want to close by asking you to make your pitch Why should readers who are fascinated by this period of the second world war and the years leading up to it or even ones who just want to read a great story who want to reach behind the scenes fans of Catherine Hepburn's work why should your readers pick up this book or why should people who are readers pick up your book and become your readers and enjoy last call at the Hotel Imperial and meet these four intrepid journalists
1: So I think first of all, what they do for us is they put together a bunch of stories that we almost never think about as happening at the same time or being interrelated. So the world war, the rise of fascism, anti-colonial nationalism, flapperism, sexual revolution, sexual liberation in the 1920s and thirties, the Frank memoir. And you can see by living through these years with them which is what the book really tries to do how those things are connected. So Jimmy Sheehan said Hitler was the only person who saw the world as a whole, but of course he also thought that the journalists too saw the world as a whole. And then I think the second reason is that they, as I said before, they're indelible people. They really jump off the page. There's something urgent and existential about them. Yes. And you, because they write so frankly about themselves, you can actually get a glimpse of their dilemmas. And then I think the third reason is because their dilemmas, dilemmas unfortunately are not so far away from our dilemmas, which is we too have seen the barriers between major geopolitical events like war in Ukraine, uh, among others, collapse the boundaries between people's private lives and their lives in public. And that's exactly the dynamic that these reporters are trying to capture. You know, What is the relationship between um, how does one person change the world? What is the relationship between a marriage and an empire? They're trying to grapple with the boundaries between their own personal lives and the lives of people many, many miles away from them. Um, And they're placed in world historical events. And I think that that's, unfortunately, our lot too.
0: Well, it is an excellent book, Deborah Cohen. I'm so glad that you introduced me to these journalists. It's the kind of book that i'll say sometimes that it scares me not to have read and i had another book that i read last year that i recently described that same way makes you richer makes you look at the world in a different way and for somebody who's read and watched and learned as much about World War Two as myself. That was no small accomplishment by last call at the Hotel Imperial. I really appreciate you joining me today, introducing me to them, bringing me to that bar where I didn't even have a headache the next morning. I just yeah. felt really good after I met all of them. So I wish you the best of luck with this book. I hope everyone will pick it up, get these unique perspectives on this conflict and just a human story it is really enjoyable you'll be so glad that you checked in at the hotel imperial
1: thank you so much for having me on the show i've really enjoyed the conversation
0: again the book is last call at the hotel imperial the reporters who took on a world at war as always you can find the amazon link to purchase your copy at the historyauthor.com page for this episode By buying a book through us, you help keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. My sincere thanks to Deborah Cohen for joining us today and for introducing us to these four incredible journalists. They chronicled some of the darkest, but most exciting moments in the 20th century, as well as turning that spotlight inward at the human condition. I also have to thank Kara Robertson again, the author of The Trial of Lizzie Borden, for pointing Deborah Cohen my way, please do check out our interview in the History Author Show archives. If you enjoyed watching this conversation, please do subscribe at our YouTube and Rumble channels for future journeys in the Wayback Machine. By the way, there's over 250 such adventures archived at HistoryAuthor.com. Please do go there to check them out. I'm sure you'll find something you like and you can also navigate from there to all my social media accounts. You can find my radio interviews on other shows as well as my Washington Times and other opinion pieces. I even had one on the Jerusalem Post recently. You'll find them all published right there. That's it for this installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for our next all new interview right here on iArt Radio or wherever you enjoyed this journey into yesterday. Until that next trip into the past together, on behalf of Deborah Cohen, Thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Old New York ain't New York anymore.